Well, this morning we're going to dig into a question that has been on the minds of people for a long time, one that, uh, much like we saw a couple of weeks ago, uh, that lingers and people still wonder about it today. We're going to dig into another one of those as another group of people join in this discussion with Jesus. Um, again, probably not so wholeheartedly, but they seek to discredit him. So we're going to look at the only time here in the book of Mark where Mark brings up this new, um, a new people that we haven't met yet. Uh, they're not new to them, but uh, new to us in our reading here. Uh, it's, it's about the Sadducees, and we'll, we'll read that uh, this morning as we look at uh, Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. And there we read these words. And the Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. The second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they, are neither, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. May God grant us wisdom this morning as we contemplate this passage. I, I posed this question the last couple of days. Um, does it make a difference whether or not you hit your mark or not? And my, my response uh, from myself to that was, it kind of depends on what you're aiming for. Now, back in the day when my shoulder didn't give me issues and I would bowl and everything, I, I tried to always hit my mark in bowling. Maybe, maybe you had that too. You went bowling and um, I'm a little too calculated. I'm a little too OCD to just wing the ball down the, down the alley and hope that it knocks as many over as possible. I tried to calculate it out. I, I did a little research. I got my own special ball, which, uh, as it turns out, didn't help a whole lot. But I, but I had it all set. This, this board, this arrow, uh, out on the lane, that's the one I'm going for. If my ball hits that mark, I've got a pretty good shot at doing well. Now, with that also came uh, where I stood, because if, if, the, if the approach is about this wide, and I'm aiming for a mark over here, 
if I stand to the far side of it this way, that's going to have a different effect than if I stand on this side and still throw out the same mark. But for me, when, when I'm just bowling, as long as I stood in the same place and came close to the mark at least, it didn't have too much of an effect as to hitting some of the pins. Now, um, many times I did not all go down. But I had this in my mind that if I, if I can hit my mark, a good result will come. But that, that makes a difference, again, on what you're aiming for. So you take an archer who's, who's drawing his bow to hit the bullseye that's out uh, a ways, and he draws it back and takes his aim, and he lets the arrow go. Now, inasmuch as he lines everything up, he will do pretty well with hitting the mark. But that'll make a difference too. I mean, if, if the archer is shooting from here to the front row of seats, you've got a pretty good chance of hitting in a very small area. Now, if you move that same mark to the back of the sanctuary or maybe out in the street, that's a different, different story. If you are off by just a degree or so when it's only 10 feet in front of you, it doesn't make so much of a difference. But when you put that mark farther out, one degree or so could mean you miss it completely. Just like if you're, if you're shooting for the stars. If you're on a trajectory to be in a rocket ship and you say, I need to follow this course, a fraction of a degree will get you nowhere close to where you want it to be. The longer you go out, the farther off you might be. It all makes a difference on what mark you're trying to hit. I've had it too where um, I've come to this place of misunderstanding things. When I, when I start to understand something, the place that I start from in my understanding was faulty. So for me to understand, or if you want, if you will, hit my mark in what I'm trying to understand, because I started from that faulty position, maybe that goes back to this bowling example, if I start from this side and I'm aiming for that arrow, I'm probably going to miss my mark a lot because I started from the wrong place. My understanding of what I needed to do to understand what's going to happen was faulty. Being able to come to this place where you understand correctly from the beginning will also help us hit our mark. Here we have this story before us today, and Jesus is addressing this kind of an idea. What were the people thinking that are asking these questions? What, what, was, the, what was the outcome of, of their way of thinking? And they put the question to Jesus, and of course, Jesus turns the table. So let's, let's uh, unfold this as, as we try to understand what this means for us today, because this passage uh, probably still lingers in your mind as far as what exactly are things like after we're dead? For those that are in Christ Jesus, what, what, what is in the afterlife? What, what will our existence be like? This, this group of Sadducees, as we're introduced to here and the only time in Mark, um, are, are part of the a strict religious sect. Um, and maybe they would, that would be debated between the Pharisees, but 
the, the Sadducees were those that held that the only true authority of Scripture was the Torah, particularly the five books of Moses. Unlike the Pharisees who would add all kinds of other rules and regulations to what Scripture said and impose those on other people and then make sure that they followed every little bit of those things according to their own way of thinking. The Sadducees did not follow that. If it wasn't said in the five books of Moses, it doesn't exist. So these are the These are the people that are coming before Jesus. They knew the scriptures. They knew those five books. They are the teachers of it. And here in this passage, they're they're bringing up a question. And the the text doesn't say it this time, but they're they're bringing up this question, much like uh, we saw with the, the Pharisees and the Herodians, where their motives are not pure. Not at all. Now, our text doesn't say like it did before, trying to trap him. So you can see the plot unfolding before their eyes. It doesn't say that in our text, but if you know anything about them, and as we get to know them a little bit here, you'll recognize that their intentions are not pure in what they ask. The, the situation that they're proposing is, for them, absolutely absurd. But they bring it to Jesus. They're they're referencing something from the Old Testament law that comes from Deuteronomy 25. It's the Leverite Leverite law where if a woman who's married dies without children, the next brother would, and this sounds weird to us, right? Uh, The next brother would then uh, provide children uh, for the woman so that her inheritance would continue. It sounds like a very uh, strange uh, way of doing things for us. It does, not, it does not suggest that if the man can't have uh, children with his wife, that he would ask his brother to come in and do that for him. Um, scripture is not saying that polygamy or some sort of uh, misidea of uh, sexuality is at all being uh, advocated for here. What is being uh, advocated for is the inheritance that God's people were given. Each one had a very specific inheritance and they were allotted a certain portion, whether it's the land or... And they would, they would expect that. And there were times in the Old Testament where, where uh, daughters were born but no sons and then what happens to, to the inheritance because it's in the Father's name. And if they marry somebody else, it goes to somebody else then. And God wanted to make sure that the inheritance given to God's people would be preserved. So that's a little bit of the background here, and I'm not trying to um, bring full clarity onto all that, but this is the circumstance in which these Sadducees are bringing their case. Again, uh, for them, this would be ridiculous. To to think that... um, a woman would be married seven times and then in the afterlife somehow be married to all seven or, or trying to decide which of them would be the husband. The Sadducees are taking their starting position, taking their aim from the books of Moses. It's a good place to start. 
And that's where they come at this. Their, their perspective, though, from the Old Testament, from the books of Moses, say nothing about an afterlife. As far as the Sadducees are concerned, there is no afterlife because the five books of Moses speak nothing of it. So their question, as you begin to see now, is absurd. They don't believe in it. They don't believe in a resurrection. Some have made the ongoing joke, that's why they're sad, you see. If you don't believe anything after this life, what hope do you have? And that's what we were praying about. That's our mission as a church, to bring hope to people for the future so that in the life after this one, when everything is all said and done, everything will be put back in order. And in the meantime, we have that eternal hope that we hang on to and we receive God's grace and mercy and joy and peace and love and all along the way until that point. But the Sadducees, they don't believe in any of that stuff afterwards because in their starting perspective, the Bible doesn't say anything about that. And so their position, while uh, having a good foundation, is going to be challenged. But that creates this, this tension for, for us as well. What, what happens? Because we all know people that are not on their uh, first marriage, but their second, or maybe even more. Uh, I don't know if anybody knows of the one who's on their seventh marriage. But we know about those people, and we know, we know that it happens in our world where one dies, and we, we know also that divorce happens, and, and there's remarriage that takes place after divorces, and people end up with a first mate and a second mate and a third. And we wonder, what, what happens afterwards? Now, for, for people that have been married only once, um, our, our great hope is to be able to see our loved ones again. We talk a lot about that. But there's this, there's this tension that still exists today for people that have had more than one husband or wife. What, what is the answer to that? And we're still stuck in that place 2,000 years later. What about my, uh, even if you're only married once, what about my wife? Will I, will I recognize my wife when I get there? Will she recognize me? Will, what will that level of knowing be in the afterlife? Even beyond whether or not you had more than one, what exactly will it be like in the afterlife? Because that's raised in this, in this text as well. There's something about the afterlife that the Sadducees don't believe in. We do, as would the Pharisees, but we're in this place of still wondering more and more each day, especially as we get older, what exactly waits for me on the other side? What will my existence be like? What will my knowledge of my loved ones be? We know uh, the life we have with one another here, uh, and it's not obviously always good. Uh, we still are sinful, broken people that hurt and break one another. And yet we still love each other 
And when that, when that relationship is gone, we, we ache and we moan and we're, we're empty. And so we wonder, maybe, maybe in the afterlife, when all is said and done, that will be restored. Will it? Is that what it's what the afterlife is about? Is that what heaven will be like where you can finally get together again with all those that have passed away before you that you'd love to see again? Would we be disappointed if you went to heaven and you didn't see your spouse? Would you be disappointed if you went to heaven and you never saw your husband or your wife. Or, or maybe it took, how do, you, how do you describe time and eternity? What if it took a long period of waiting before you saw them? Would there be this anxious longing and disappointment because I haven't seen the one that I've been missing for so long? That's the tension that we see yet in this. Jesus, in his masterful rabbi way, once again, answers their question with a question. From verse 24, Jesus said, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you neither know the Scriptures nor the power of God. He has already said, You're wrong. Because you don't understand the Word of God or the power of God. Now this would be a slap in the face to the Sadducees. They would know the Scriptures. They are meant to understand them. That's what they would pride themselves in. More so than the Pharisees because we stick to the strict text of the Torah. We know them. What do you mean we don't understand the Scriptures or the power of God? They don't understand how God's Word works for His people. The, the, the fact that God doesn't give you all at once everything that He will eventually tell you. We don't do that with our children either. We don't tell them as soon as they've begun to understand uh, conversation about what trigonometry is going to be like and how difficult that is and to start preparing now and, and rearrange your, your letters this way and that way. and We don't do that. They don't understand that yet. You give them a little bit to help them. You tell them, no, you get to have one now and you show the difference between one and two. You can have one now and one later. And you'll, you'll eventually teach them more and more as time goes along, the more they're able to comprehend and understand those things. God does that with His people too, trying to bring them to the place of understanding. And so He gives them a little bit to set the stage for what is actual and real and true in our world. He gave them this creation story to show them, I am the Lord of all the universe. It is all mine. It is my kingdom. And He has all authority. And He would begin to show how that progresses throughout the Scriptures, throughout the five books of Moses, throughout the, the prophets and the wisdom and uh, literature, the, the writings of the psalmists. All of that would be 
continually built upon. And then to the point where now in their day, when Jesus stands before them, a new and fresh and fuller revelation would happen for them. They have missed uh, throughout their time this powerful working of God. Jesus says, you're not going to be like what you are now. You're not going to be married or given in marriage. What you understand about this life is not going to carry over as a one-for-one in the next life. Now, again, these are people that don't even believe in the afterlife, but he's telling this for our benefit as well. And for theirs so that they would fully understand the Scriptures. He's saying, you think of life as a continuation of this one into the next. We still think that way. That's why we ask the question. That's why we make the comments about, when I get to heaven, I'm going to... in large part because we think of putting back into existence the way our life was. Understanding heaven from human, earthly, temporal position. Starting from going back to this. Starting from over here, trying to hit a mark over there. When Jesus says you need to shift your starting point so that when you aim at the mark, it will produce the result that he's hoping for. His first rebuke to them is stop looking at the afterlife. And again, this is from a people that don't believe in that, so it's, it's for the benefit of all that would listen. Stop looking at life as a continuation of what you see now in this heavenly realm, but now in a perfect way. Jesus would talk later about that. Uh, a seed has to die, and it's, it's put in the ground as perishable, but it's raised imperishable. There's something dramatically different about our existence Afterwards, you have to start in that place of recognizing that what is to come is not the continuation of this life. Verses 26 and 27, he said, As, as for the dead being raised, if, if, if the woman had seven husbands and in the afterlife when they're raised, he said, Let, let's address that. Haven't you read in the five books that you hang on to the very answer to that question? He doesn't take something from from another place, another context or whatever. He met the people where they were at and said, here, let's go back to those books you hold to. Very powerful, true, God-given books. And let's look at that. He said, didn't Moses' encounter at the bush give you the indication about the dead being raised? Didn't you remember from all those times that you have proclaimed from that very text when Moses heard from God, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Not I used to be, 
or those people used to be my servants? I am the God of those people. They are living people. And I am their God yet. They should have understood that from their own writings that they hold to. That should have sparked something in their mind to ask them more questions. But they missed it. They missed the fact that God is the God of the living, not the dead. And praise God, because if if God was not a God of a living Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then all of the promises given to them, which was hundreds of years before this incident for Moses and thousands of years now for us, if He is not the God of those who are alive, then all of His promises are dead in them. And now that would make you sad, you see. If you didn't believe that God's promises would continue because He is the God who saves those people and preserves those people and those promises to them continue on as well, if we don't believe that, hope is lost, which is the place of the Sadducees. Here's Jesus standing before them. They're trying to discredit Him. And Jesus... Jesus stands there before them and His rebuke is, you're so wrong. You don't know the Word of God or the power of God. Did you catch who was saying that to them? You don't know that I am the Word of God. John would make that proclamation as he starts his Gospel account. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. You neither know the Word of God nor the power of God. One stands before them, not only as the Word of God incarnate to bring about all that was spoken of, but He is the power of God in their presence, born of a virgin. He will be raised from the dead. And He will say, even before His death, I am the resurrection. I am the life. Do you believe this? Was the question that was asked. And now he's here with these people who believe nothing about that. And we get to hear a little bit of this conversation and and feel all this uneasiness going on and ask those questions for ourselves. What is is my perspective of, of heaven and the afterlife? is my greatest reward to go see my wife afterwards. If that would be the case, I've started from the wrong place. I'm aiming at the wrong thing. When we all get to heaven, the song says, when we all get there, our eyes are going to be open. We will see things the way we should see them. We will understand completely where we still just see through a glass dimly now. Our hope, our hope is firmly in Jesus. There is no one on earth I desire and none in heaven but you. It would be a hard statement to make right after we lost a loved one. And God doesn't expect us to do that. He grieves with us. 
Jesus grieved at the death of Lazarus. Jesus stood there looking at the grave of his friend and he wept. For you and I, to hit the mark is to start from the right place. Understanding we don't know everything about Scripture, but God keeps revealing more and more to us. That's why we keep journeying through the Scripture. That's why we would do it time after time after time because as many times as I've read through the Scriptures, from cover to cover, as many times as I've researched it, as many times as i stood up here to proclaim it, I don't know it yet. I don't know it all. I'm still on this journey myself of seeing more and more the Word of God and the power of God. And He never disappoints us, brothers and sisters. Here He comes to the Sadducees and stands before them as the the one thing that they thought they trusted in, the Word of God. But they missed the power of God in all that in that the dead are actually raised. And with that, we do have hope. Regardless of the circumstances of the day, of the year, of the, of the decade, what's going on around us in the world, our hope is secure as we understand the Word of God, the living Word of God, and the written Word of God, and the power that it brings. Every one of us has a story to tell about the power of the Word of God in our lives. as you begin to see where our own sinful failings occur in this life and we hear in the Word of God that everyone who confesses his sins is cleansed. The one that repents and turns of his ways and turns to the living God and follows Him, there is life in this life and life everlasting. There's a time in our lives where we come to know that. There should be uh, lots of occasions for us to recall the power of the Word of God in our lives and it should cause us to want to spread that message. We could be Jesus to to the Sadducees of our day that think nothing of that because they're starting from the wrong place. They don't believe in this thing or they don't hold to that teaching. They don't believe in the Scriptures. And so they wouldn't believe in the one that the Scriptures speak about, same as the Sadducees. The very one that all of Scripture speaks about was standing before them, trying to re-aim them at the right um, mark that they need to be heading for, correcting them. As much as it sounds like an awful rebuke, it is Jesus' way of saying, you're wrong. It is there. Go back and look again and put it together with all the writings. And then see that I stand before you today. Our our lives are bound by some of the decisions that we make. God is sovereign over all. And He says, now choose. When you choose this way, this will happen. And when you choose that way, this will happen. And He has ordained those things for us. And it brings us to this place of decision. How far am I willing to look at the Word of God and accept what it says and do what it says and be transformed by it so that I do understand more and more fully the power of the Word and the power of the living God? 
That's the hope that we have. That's the hope we want to share. That's what we profess. We are here because we want to see, we want to hear, and we want to understand the Word of God and the power of God. So pray with me. Jesus, as those words still ring in our ears, uh, you are quite wrong. You neither know the Scriptures nor the power of God. As those words echo yet, we have to wrestle with that ourselves. What is our response to your word? To you, the living word. How will we approach your word each new day? Will we search for it as we would for hidden treasure with such great reward? Would we set aside everything for it and pursue only that which is bound to your word that helps us through this life in a way that brings us to your everlasting kingdom? Is that our approach to your word? Have we become complacent with it? Have we gotten to this place where I know enough? Jesus, if, if we are not coming wholeheartedly with hands wide open, with eyes open, with ears open, with hearts open, ready to receive, if we haven't done that, forgive us. And we commit ourselves to you that to that again. We want to be more like you. We want to know your word so that it has its full effect on us and so that we can use it as a way of bringing hope and peace and comfort to those that need it. We want to know your power. Not our own efforts, not my own strength. I will fail at that every time. And I confess that before you, Father, the times where I have acted in my own strength and it gets me nowhere. I want to know your power. I want to see you work through weak people and broken vessels to create a beautiful picture and a redeemed world. And so help us, Father, by the power of the Spirit that you have left to dwell within us, to steer us and to correct us, to illumine us, and to challenge us and to rebuke us, And to put that option before us once again, what will you do today in the name of Jesus? So we pray, Holy Spirit, as you have inspired these words to be written down, as you have caused these words to be preserved uh, throughout the generation, throughout the millennium, that you would take these words and knit them within us, that they might have their full effect in our lives. And give us grace, Father, to let that happen. So we surrender ourselves to the living Word and the power of God. In Jesus' name, Amen.